Our planet's magnetic field is vital for life to thrive on Earth. Generated deep within the core, it protects us from harmful radiation that would kill most life as we know it. Without this protective magnetic cocoon, any ancient life would not have survived for long. Recent observations of the Earth's magnetic field suggest that it is reversing, flipping polarity such that the North Magnetic Pole becomes the South. How will this flipping affect us, and when will it occur? The Flipping of the Earth's Magnetic Field on this episode of Space Junk Podcast. Welcome to Space Junk Podcast with Tony Darnell and Dustin Gibson. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I want to talk to you about the possibility that the magnetic field of the Earth could be in the process of changing polarity. There's been a lot of talk about this on my news feed. I get a lot of questions about this, so I thought I'd address it in this podcast episode. So to get started, we should probably understand that the Earth's magnetic field surrounds our planet like a force field, and it protects us from radiation and particles that are coming at us from in the solar wind. It does this by deflecting all of the charged particles away, and some of these charged particles are very dangerous. The Earth's magnetic field is generated in the core of the Earth, some 3,000 kilometers below our feet. And, this is important, it is not constant. It is continuously changing. So what drives the Earth's magnetic field? Well, in order to really understand this, we should probably take a step back and look at the structure of the Earth. And I'm going to do the best I can in an audio format here. But if you can imagine the Earth, it's an oblate spheroid, roughly spherical shape. And at the top of the planet, on the surface of the planet, is a crust. And that crust is about 31 kilometers thick. And below that, there is a mantle. This is a hot viscous mix of molten rock, which is about 2,900 kilometers thick, so a much deeper, hotter uh, area of the Earth. And then we have the core. And what and what I didn't appreciate until I started looking into this was that there are, there are two kinds. The Earth has two cores. There's an outer core and an inner core. The outer core is only 1,400 miles or about 2,200 kilometers thick, and it's composed mostly of molten iron and nickel. So this is all liquid metals deep in the uh, core of the earth. And then there's the inner core. This is a little bit thinner. It's only 1,200 kilometers thick, and it's a solid sphere of iron and nickel metals, and it's very, very hot. It's about as hot as the surface of the sun. So we have a crust, very thin on the outside. That makes up the land that we walk on. Then there's the mantle, which is this hot, viscous mix of molten rock that's just underneath that. And then we have the outer core, and this is the most important part, and this is the part where most of the magnetic field is generated in the outer core that's about 2,200 kilometers thick, and it's composed mostly of molten iron and nickel. Then, of course, the inner core, very hot and solid. Okay. Okay, so now that we know what how the Earth is kind of structured in its anatomy, let's take a look at how the magnetic field is actually generated, and that is called a geodynamo. This is the the thing that actually creates the magnetic field lines that protect us. Now, almost all of the magnetic field strength comes from the outer core. Like I said, that's that molten nickel and, and, and iron that's just surrounding the inner core. 
And because the Earth is rotating, it's spinning on its axis, it's sloshing around all of that liquid that's in the center of the outer core, or that's in the outer core, and it creates these convective zones, these this sort of boiling of the Earth's outer core, all this molten metal. And when you move, and as this roiling liquid moves around, it generates electric currents that are hundreds of miles wide, and they're flowing at thousands of miles per hour as the earth rotates. And though whenever you have an electric current, you have an associated magnetic field, and that is where the electric field comes from. The geodynamo, this swirling of all of this molten metal in the core is creating electric fields, and what, and generated along with that is the magnetic field. Almost all of this is generated in the outer core of the earth. So when you create a magnetic field, every magnetic field known to the uni- in the universe has two poles. They're called a dipole. We have yet to discover a what's called a magnetic monopole, something where there's only one magnetic field pole. There's always two. And this uh, is called a magnetic dipole, the one that is in the Earth. And as you can imagine, as any compass that you've ever held shows you that the there's a magnetic north and a magnetic south, and it moves depending on how you're facing, and it and that little needle in your compass p- follows parallel the field lines of the magnetic field of the Earth. So at the Earth's surface, the magnetic currents and their associated magnetic fields, they form a north-south magnetic pole, and they have opposite positive and negative polarities. Again, just like a bar magnet. And these invisible lines of the magnetic field, they travel in these closed, continuous loop flowing into the Earth at the North Pole and out at the South Pole. So that is the motion of the magnetic field itself. And as we've seen in a lot of diagrams of the solar system, as the sun shines and sends out radiation pressure towards the Earth in the form of a solar wind, that solar wind compresses up against the magnetic field of the Earth changing its shape, distorts it, but it also moves the solar wind and a lot of the harmful radiation up and around the earth, protecting us. And here's something else I didn't know, but when I was doing the research for this topic, I found out as I was going along, we actually have three North Poles and three South Poles. But you didn't know that. I didn't. We have the North Pole, the true North Pole. That's the geographic pole. And that's just the the spin axis of the earth. That's the part that we always align with our telescope mounts, right? True north. Uh, that's, that's defined by the spinning of the earth. But we have a magnetic pole, which is what I was just talking about. That's where the magnetic field lines all come in at the north pole, and then they all come out at the south pole. That's the magnetic pole. But we also have something called a geomagnetic pole. And these are, this is the location where the poles, the North and South Poles, are exactly opposite of each other, and they cross through the center of the Earth. That's not actually aligned with the field travel, the field strength of the North and South Magnetic Pole. So I did not know that. <laughs> the geomagnetic poles are more stable, and they change less often than the magnetic poles do. But they're, they, they define the point at which the North and South Magnetic Pole are exactly opposite to each other. And they're different. They're not the same. So while the geographic North Pole is directly over the spin axis of the Earth, the 
North magnetic pole is slightly off from that, about 23 degrees or so of that. And then there's the North geomagnetic pole, which is currently way, way far away from that. It's over Greenland right now. That's where the North geomagnetic pole is. So they're not at all in the same location. And Another important feature of magnetic fields of planets, and certainly one of our Earths, is that ever since the magnetometer was invented in 1830, we have been measuring the magnetic field of magnetic field strength and direction of the Earth. And the, the only way you can really measure a magnetic field, and this is lucky for us, is by being in it. You can't look from the outside of something that is magnetized and detect or measure a magnetic field. You have to actually be in it. So our magnetometers on the ground and also in space have to be within the magnetic field in order to get a strength from it. And this has been a problem for people who are trying to study the sun's magnetic field for you know, hundreds of years because we can't, we're not sitting directly in the magnetic field of the sun, at least not that close to it. And so we can't get an idea of how strong the sun's magnetic field is. We know it's there, but we have to infer its strength by looking at its effects on other things. And only recently with the Parker Solar Probe have we been able to actually fly close enough to the sun to actually measure the magnetic field strength. So we've been doing that here on Earth since about 1830. And one of the things we've discovered, or one of the things that scientists have discovered, is that the poles move. They don't stay in one place and they move all the time and they've moved ever since the earth existed. And not only do they move, but they completely flip. They change direction. Now the sun does this all the time. We see it in magnetic field reversals uh, associated with the solar cycle. So we know that magnetic poles can flip and we have seen it not only moving around within our own magnetometer observations on the ground, but also in the fossil record. When you look at magnetized objects deep in the fossil record, you can see evidence of a field reversal at various times in the Earth's past. And they seem to happen, these magnetic field reversals seem to happen on Earth anyway, once every 450,000 years or so. But here's the thing. The last reversal that we've ever had that was recorded in the fossil record was 780,000 years ago. So if they occur, if they occur every 450,000 years or so, and the last one was 780,000 light years ago, it would seem to be a bit overdue for one and almost twice as long <laughs> as the, as they're supposed to occur in the period or the history of the earth. So it does seem like we're primed for them. So as I mentioned, they do move around all the time, and they've been noticing this ever since the 1830s, but they also change their shape, magnetic fields do, and they change their strength. Um, and we, we notice this by measuring something called the Van Allen belt or that goes around the Earth. These, these belts are solar, uh, or I'm sorry, are magnetic field lines that capture solar particles, and the particles get trapped in these field lines, and they, they travel down towards the pole. And we can measure this directly. And we know from these measurements that their intensity and the shape changes with interactions with the solar wind. So as the sun becomes more active, the shape of our magnetic field changes. And as it becomes less active, it also changes shape the other way. So our magnetic field, the field strength that we've been measuring for as long as we've been able to measure it, is showing that we are seeing a decrease in the magnetic field strength 
at the rate of about 5% every century. So for every 100 years that go by, our magnetic field seems to be going, getting about 5% weaker. So again, another troublesome data point. <laughs> so as I mentioned before, poles move around. They, they move around, they change their shape and everything else. And we have been tracking their movement for a very, very long time. And there's a couple of ways of doing it, ground-based magnetometers, but also ESA, the uh, European Space Agency, has the swarm constellation of satellites that are directly measuring the magnetic field in space. And they confirm that not only is the magnetic field moving, but it's speeding up. The North Pole is currently moving towards Asia, and the South Pole is leaving Antarctica and heading towards Australia. This is the data from the ESA swarm satellites. So are we about to flip? Seem kind of primed here with the observations that we've seen. And so is the magnetic field about to switch polarity? Now, no one's really sure why all of this, is, why magnetic fields flip on Earth, or for the sun for that matter. They're still trying to understand the mechanisms there. But during a reversal, the magnetic field weakens. And not just by a little bit. It doesn't go to zero, but it gets real close. It can, de it can decrease in magnetic field strength by as much as 90%. So we could just have maybe a magnetic field that's only 10% as powerful as it should be. And this is as it's moving, as it's, as it's flipping. And if the magnetic fields do go in flip direction, then they may appear at the equator, <laughs> or even we may even at the time of this get simultaneous multiple north and south poles. It can get quite messy in the course of, a, of an inflipping. <laughs> That's a word I just invented. So while in most cases we have a very solid north and south pole, as the, as the pole begins to move over the planet and begin to flip direction, when it gets to the equator, it starts to get really messy. And we get a lot of North Poles and a lot of South Poles and all the magnetic field lines get all jumbled up and then cancel each other out. That's one reason why it gets so weak. So um, that is kind of a scary situation. It's nowhere near as well defined in the process of a flipping that's going on. But of course, it's never that simple. It doesn't just move one direction and then get messy for a little bit and then flip. Sometimes... Reversals can only be temporary. Sometimes the magnetic field can move a little bit and then stop and then go back again. That's called an excursion. That's where the magnetic field decides to take a little field trip, right? It just decides to go down a little bit and then go, wait a bit. Okay, you know what? I think I'm going to come back now. And then it comes back. Now, that's happened quite a few times. And it's called a Lachamp event. It's spelled L-A-S-C-H-A-M-P. And it is a temporary but a shorter-lived change in the intensity of the magnetic field. And they can last anywhere from a few centuries to a few tens of thousands of years. So these are long-scale events, but not as long as an inflipping would take. And an inflipping could take as much as a uh, uh, hundred thousand years to happen. So while they don't take as long, they happen about ten times more frequently as pole reversals do. So an excursion can go down, it can reorient the Earth's magnetic fields by as much as 45 degrees from their previous position, and then reduce the strength of the field by up to 20%. So excursions are shorter lived, they don't go as far, and they don't weaken the magnetic field by anywhere near as much, only 20%. Now, they're generally regional instead of global. They don't happen planet-wide. Uh, 
And as far as scientists can tell, there have been three significant excursions in the past. There's been one that was one 70,000 years ago, which is called the Norwegian Greenland Sea Event. And there was one about 64,000 years ago. And then there was uh, some Lachant events between 42,000 and 41,000 years ago. So the last temporary reversal was 41,000 years ago, and it lasted about 1,000 years. And the actual polarity change lasted about 250 years. So this last one was considered a failed reversal, but it was the fastest observed shift. It only happened, you know, 40,000 years. It lasted 1,000 years, and that's quick by these kinds of standards. So because the decreasing magnetic field that we're currently measuring right now at our magnetometers, some scientists are suggesting that we may have one within 2,000 years. An excursion, not necessarily a magnetic field reversal. So you can see this is really kind of a messy um, situation because we know that the magnetic field can fully reverse it may not. It may just be an excursion, in which case it starts to reverse, but then it goes back again. Those don't last anywhere near as long. So we know something is happening with the Earth's magnetic field. Either we're getting a, a, a pole reversal or maybe a, a Lachan event, or maybe nothing at all because the, the magnetic fields move all the time. They're moving quite rapidly right now, uh, and they are uh, they are getting a little bit weaker. So with all of this information, let's think a little bit about what would happen to us if there was a pole reversal. Now, we can't really say for sure what a, pole, uh, a complete pole reversal would be on humanity because the humans have not been, a, we have been around <laughs> during the last pole reversal. There was 700 some odd thousand years ago. So there weren't very many, there weren't any human beings. Some of our early ancestors were around, but not human homo sapiens. So uh, we can't say whether or not we would survive a magnetic field reversal, if, especially if the field strength goes down to nine, by 90% or 95%. But we did survive the last Lachan event, which was just 40,000 years ago. So uh, we know that we can at least get through a partial excursion of one of these. But another effect that may happen here on the Earth is that as we, we're becoming more uh, understanding of a lot of behaviors of migratory animals, we've learned that a lot of migrating birds, for example, and insects use the magnetic field of the Earth as sort of a GPS to get them around their migratory paths. So almost certainly they would be affected, but we don't know if they've got any kind of corrections for it. Um, so that would be another effect on the Earth if the magnetic field switches. But I would say that I think the, the real threat to us would probably be on our reliance on electronics. We know that the magnetic field weakens and it shifts and moves around. If a solar storm was, were to hit us during one of those times, almost certainly the magnetic field would be affected in a way such a way that our electronics would probably be damaged. So that's one way in which we could almost certainly predict our magnetic field reversal would affect us. And this would be very similar to a lot of space weather events that we already know about, like coronal mass ejections and things like that. But they would be more pronounced if our magnetic field is already weakened. So we need to watch out for that. And, you know, the economic cost of all this could be quite high. So 
the magnetic field, however, would still protect us, even though it's weak. Um, but there still could be some radiation that gets through. And how much, of course, would depend on the details. So another thing that we should probably think about uh, if we ever are confronted with a magnetic field reversal. So when the magnetic field becomes all jumbled up, like if it, like I mentioned, when it gets at the equator and multiple magnetic poles start happening everywhere, then we might get all kinds of weird effects from that as the radiation hits the, uh, hits the Earth in a disorganized way. What might be really cool, though, is imagine you've got a North Pole sitting over the equator and you're in some tropical island. You might actually see some aurora, you know, these charged particles that come in from the sun, follow the magnetic field lines into the Earth, and they glow. And uh, we might be able to see some of those. So we've kind of come to understand through the course of all this that the of how the Earth's magnetic field is created and the fact that it moves around, it changes shape, changes direction. And we know that it's currently moving. We know that it's getting a little bit weaker and a little bit stronger in other spots. Uh, so is the magnetic field reversing or isn't it? Well, the general consensus is that we are almost certainly not heading for a magnetic field reversal. The average intensity of the Earth's magnetic field at the Earth's surface has decreased by about 10%. And we know from paleomagnetic records that the intensity of the magnetic field decreases by as much as 90% of the Earth's surface during a reversal. But those same paleomagnetic records also show that the field intensity can vary significantly without resulting in a reversal. So just because we see reduced intensity in the magnetic field, that does not necessarily mean that reversal is about to occur. Moreover, the decrease that we're seeing in intensity is not a dramatic departure from what's normal. So for all we know, the field may actually get stronger at some point in the not-so-distant future. A little bit too early to hit the panic button. Now, predicting the occurrence of a reversal based on the current state of the magnetic field is really, really hard. Reversals are not instantaneous. They take place over the course of hundreds to thousands of years. So we wouldn't know that a reversal is even happening until it was half over, and by then, a thousand years will have passed. So my takeaway from all of this is that the Earth's magnetic field may be flipping, it may be on an excursion, or it may just be in a state of flux right now where, while it is a little bit weaker by about 10% or so, it could just as easily get stronger again. The fact that it's moving is no concern, happens all the time. So I guess I would say that the cause for worry of a magnetic field reversal is not warranted at this point. <laughs> but I did want to approach the subject because I get a lot of people asking about it and I thought this was pretty interesting. So tell me what you think. Do you think the Earth's magnetic field is reversing? Do you think this is something we should be worried about or not? Give me an email. Send me an email. Spacejunkpodcast at deepastronomy.com I will read your email or I will uh, at least respond to what you have to say. You're listening to Space Junk Podcast. So there's a lot of things, obviously, in the hobby of amateur astronomy that one needs to get different kinds of gear, and we're trying to address all of those different needs and wants in this podcast. And one of the things that's come along recently that has really, I think, revolutionized the hobby in a good way I don't know. Can you revolutionize something in a bad way? Well, anyway. Uh, so yeah, I think it's possible. 
Yeah, yeah, I guess revolutions can go either way, right? Yeah. Depending on your point of view. But today we want to talk about smart telescopes and computer modules that you can buy now on the market that are designed specifically to attach to your telescope. Now, you can use them as other computers, but they're designed to be put outside, mounted on your optical tube assembly or your mount, and to do all of the things that almost every uh, astronomy observer or imager would want to do. So that's what I'm going to talk about here today. Uh, smart computers and uh, what do you call them? Computer uh, computers for telescopes or telescope-oriented computers? I don't know. what There's not a name for them, I guess. But uh, You're talking anyway, about, like smart telescopes and then the uh, just the computers that people are using that yeah. are astronomy dedicated computers. Yeah, yeah it seems like they yeah, should have I a mean, term, but it doesn't. But right. <laughs> right. So, not, not that I know of, but there are a but, lot of them and they're yeah. amazing at what they do. So, yeah, we should definitely talk about these. OK, so what's your experience with these uh, and give us some examples of what's out there? So we're talking about two different things, and I'll address the the first one. You said smart telescopes. When we're talking about smart telescopes, these are not just the computers that you're going to use to control it. This is a telescope that are, has it all built in and um, is not going to offer you control through, you know, windows or, you know, um, you know your your own software or anything like that. It's basically just all set up as a contained unit, something like uh, the Stellina. And uh, you set it down and it's just going to run on its own. The other piece we're talking about are the computers, which most people are using right now are just going to be like a laptop that they bought to go outside and do their imaging with. But there are astronomy dedicated computers that you can use as well. And so some of them are built on the Raspberry Pi platform that are very, very popular, very simple to use but are going to be designed specifically to ride on top of your telescope, help with cable management, powering your system, all of those things in a way that a laptop will not. And they're going to be able to stand up to the elements a lot better as well. So they're just astronomy dedicated computers. And then um, there are windows driven boxes as well. Something like the Prima Luce Eagle comes to mind. Um, You know, that can power all your devices independently. You can like, one of my observatories is actually run off an Eagle where I can cycle power from, you know, thousands of miles away and uh, completely control everything in the observatory through this windows machine that is actually attached to my telescope because it's very small. Um, so it just rides on top of my telescope and gives me complete control of everything from wherever I am in the world using windows, which means I can put whatever software I want on it. I don't have to use whatever proprietary software comes on it. I can, I can have complete control, just like if I had a laptop or a desktop sitting there controlling everything. Right. So that's so, the real advantage of it. Yeah. And, and an important use case for all of this is robotic telescopes. So using whether your compute, whether your telescope is in your backyard and you're inside or it's mm-hmm. hundreds or thousands of miles away, these kinds of things are, 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 an important use case for what we're talking about today. So the Stellina, let's go, let's go there first. So the Stellina is one of the first generations of these kinds of all-in-one telescopes where it does it all for you and you can control it, you know, remotely via its own software and it does its right. own, its own stuff. Um, uh, we've both had experience with these and we think very, very highly of them. Uh, yep. And Unistellar as well. And the Unicellar EV scope is another example mm-hmm. of this kind of thing. And this, you probably we're going to see lots more of these out there. Um, they're because they're all self-contained. There's not a whole lot to say about them other than you turn them on, 
and and tell it what you want to observe. And it's already right. imaging built in, so you're already getting images, and it's being transmitted to your phone. That's um, what's awesome about it. Is you yeah, just sit back with your cell phone, and twenty people can sit with you with their cell phones and see the images rolling in live off this thing, you know, already stacked and being built up in front of you. It's incredible. It's like a, a, a tour of the night sky where it's taking live images and showing them to you with literally zero effort. Pretty yes. cool. And both of these telescopes, the EV scope and the Stellina, uh, have on board, I believe, I, I, I better be careful. I think it's got Linux in, in operating system in this, in built into the guts. There's an app that goes along with it that isn't written in that. It's written in whatever apps are written in uh, to interact with it. But both telescopes allow you to get access, not just to the images that are sent to your phone, uh, but you can also get access to the raw FITS data themselves. It's if you attach a thumb drive or something onto it, you can get those and then go back and do your imaging processing later on those. So both of those allow you to do those. Um, I guess I wanted to just mention those in the context of this conversation because they're there, they're smart telescopes, they're computers, they're self-contained. But I really want to dive into these this other segment, which are the computers that are designed to attach to a telescope because I don't think there's anybody out here who hasn't tried to take their laptop outside that they spent a lot of money on and connect it to their telescope in the dark <laughs> with all of its inherent cables and, and power requirements. Um, this These things kind of alleviate all of that, right? These little boxes that you can just, they're designed to be outside. They're designed to, to do yeah. what you want it to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The the deserts I keep mine in are harsh environments, and you know it's been running for a long years out there, and I I never go out there, I never clean it, never do anything, and it's just fine, um, you know. But people use this not only because of it being able to stand up to the elements in that way, or um, because you know, like the the ASI Air Plus, for instance, from ZWO, it comes with the software already on it. So, like when you are ready to image, you get one of these things, you plug it in, and it's already got everything you need on it to go. And you're ready to run it from your iPad or, or whatever device you want to, and you don't have a lot of thinking to do. You just plug things in and you, you take off. But, um, you know, it's not only that that people buy these for. One one reason I do it, even I use one even when I'm um, using a system I am going to be next to and I'm not going to control remotely, even if I'm going to stand right by it all night. And it's for cable management. I like having these short cables with the computer actually riding on it instead of a laptop down on the ground or on a little box or something, where I have these long cables coming off down to the ground where they can get caught on the moving mount get caught around the counterweights or whatever else, get pinched and, or, you know, many times I've had them pulled out where, you know, a USB cable gets ripped out and now your whole imaging night, you don't know what happened. The imaging night's gone. So for cable management purposes, it, uh, it's a game changer because now you got these tiny cables. They're not hanging off everywhere, causing drag and tracking issues and all of the mess that is, I just hate cables in general. I just hate them. Yeah. So yeah. Well, yeah, getting all that stuff tucked away and clean, it it makes the system look better. It's just less stressful and less chance that something can go wrong. So cable management alone makes these systems worth it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the 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 ones based on Raspberry Pis first. What are mm -hmm. some of the features that they have? Everything. I mean, these are feature rich devices. It's like you can do 
all of the stuff you need to do to take your images all the way from like, hey, I want to I want to point the telescope at this. I actually want to have the camera running and, you know, planning my targets. I want to be able to guide the whole thing like you. You don't have to go out and, and run two boxes together. This one box can do the whole thing to get you all of your images. Are they Windows based or do they have their own operating system and software? No, the Raspberry Pi devices are not. Um, okay. That's what Indie, I think, is is what it's called. Okay. Um, I'm so you speak computer languages. I don't, but yeah. um, you know, but no, they're just Raspberry Pi devices, so they're not Windows driven. So these are going to be soft. This is going to be software that you would get that you're not going to find commercially because they're built for the Raspberry Pi specifically and compiled for the Raspberry mm-hmm. Pi. So this would presumably contain, I've never used one, uh, so I don't know. They would presumably so, contain like, a way to control the telescope and the camera, right? right? Yeah, and, and so they, um, you know, each each company that puts them out, puts them out with their own proprietary software. Like ZWO has ZWO software package that goes on it. Uh, the Stellar Mate is another one that has K-Stars and Ecos on it. And so that, I mean, that, but that stuff can plan literally your entire night and make the system fully automated. So it can do everything, multi-star guiding. It can plug into anything you want, flip flats. and actually plan and schedule your flat calibration frames. You know, shoot multiple targets across the night without coming back to the system. And have it run across multiple targets, change filters in between, refocus in between. Like these are not systems that um, have limited capabilities. These are systems that can do big work in a really small box. Could you put a monitor on them and see what's going on? You could, but there's really no reason to because you just connect to it wirelessly to your phone or your iPad. or. So I would know. connect. Oh, okay, good. So to control this yeah. Raspberry Pi thing, I would, I would connect it with my phone. And Good. say, oh, yep. okay, I want to look. Here's my observing plan. Go do this. And where are the images stored locally on a on a local like SSD drive, or do I have to get it on my phone? Yeah, so you they would have like an uh, SD card that you'd put okay. in it, just like a camera, and save all your files to that. Pull the SD card out, put it in your computer, and you're ready to rock and roll. You know, um, but you know, in in the monitor question, you definitely could. You could sit there with a monitor, but you're defeating the purpose of a lot of it. And now you're going to have more cables hanging down staring at you. And and it's going to be like you have a desktop attached to the top of your telescope. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know. So the phone would be a definite uh, advantage to control it with. Okay. Uh, And I presume I'm assuming that those are less expensive, the Raspberry Pi ones, than the ones we're going to talk about next. So uh, what's the general price range of these? Do you have an idea? Uh, So the ASI Air um, Plus... Let me see here. It is two ninety nine for the entire thing. Oh Jesus! Um, well, just yeah, that's one. with software included. So <laughs> just buy one, folks. I mean, it's like yeah, that'll be fun to play with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Two ninety nine for uh, the computer, the software, the wireless connectivity, um, power control. Like, I mean, it, it even a DSLR port to control your DSLR if you're going that way. I mean, it's a no brainer. Those things are are amazing. Um, and there, there are a lot of different brands of it. Like I mentioned, the StellarMate is another really popular one. That one is two twenty nine. I've actually taken many of my images with the StellarMate, and that's the one that runs on K Stars and Ecos. Um, but for two twenty nine, again, that's the whole device. Um, you can control everything from that with your phone. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, it's not. And it's not the power expensive. requirements. Are they? Uh, are they? Uh, can they run off a battery, or or how do you how do you run these things power wise? Yeah, you can run them off of um, a DC battery, or you can uh, 
you know, run them AC if you prefer. With, with an adapter kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, there's that's one class of co- telescope control. Uh, the next one is the one that um, I've only dreamed about, which is the ones put out by people like Prima Luce. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that class of telescope computer. So same idea, just different approach. This is more of the, the, I want a real computer, like a real powerful computer that I would have if I brought a laptop out there, right? So I I still want to have the same control that I would if I had a Windows laptop sitting there next to the scope, but I want to still have all the benefits of, you know, controlling dew heaters. I want to be able to cycle things remotely, like cycle power to everything remotely, um, the Eagle has, um, what they call the Eagle eye that will, um, even measure, you know, your sky <laughs> I like quality. That name. <laughs> Eagle <eye>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll measure your sky quality for you. I mean, these are, these are true windows computing systems that you can install any software you want. So instead of coming with the proprietary software to control everything, theirs comes with proprietary software to control the outlets on these things, to control your dew heaters and control your USB ports and control your power ports so that you don't, um, you know, if something goes wrong and you want to cycle power to something, you don't have to go out to an observatory or whatever. You can do it from home just by clicking on it in the software. Um, And then you can also run, if you have a a software program that's Windows driven, like a lot of people are using Nina. I personally use CCD Autopilot and SkyX on my uh, observatory and landers, you know, and you can install whatever you want because it's just a Windows computer. So you don't have to, you know, you don't get boxed in with a particular software package. You can use whatever you want. And how do you interact with it? How do you tell it? How do you control it? Is it with a phone again or somewhere, some other way? Yeah. Yeah. You can control it with a phone. You can control it from, you know, whatever, any device you want, um, because it will connect through, uh, because it's an actual window system, you can connect through Chrome remote or uh, team viewer or, you know, when, uh, what's the remote desktop? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, you're right. It's just a terminal. It's just a windows computer on a network at that point. So you can Mm -hmm. install whatever you would do to remotely access a computer, I guess. Okay. Yeah. And so like the, the top, the top level one, it's called the Eagle four pro. I mean, these are not machines that you have, uh, that are, you know, that lack capability. This thing has 16 gigs of, uh, Ram and it's an I five processor just to save power mainly is the reason they didn't go with a bigger processor. I7s, yeah. Um, 480 gigs of SSD, right? So like these are, these are capable machines. For data storage and stuff like that to keep your... Yeah, absolutely. Nine USB ports on this thing so you can control all your devices, you know, and then four additional power ports. um, Although you do have to buy separate cables to run each thing, but that way you can power like your mount off of it. You can power your CCD camera or CMOS camera off of it. Um, the whole thing, like whatever you want to do, you can run power to the entire thing and not have to go visit with it. You can just leave it sitting there and control it. Wow. It's a power hub too. That's great. So if I, as I'm sitting here thinking, um, a lot of these times, a lot of these observatories are going to be put in remote locations or you'll be observing in a remote location. Uh, but to communicate with it, so you won't have internet, it won't have outside internet, but it does have its own hotspot, right? So you can still communicate with it via wireless, regardless of whether there's internet around, right? 
or do you do you yes. need a internet connection? Good. Yeah, okay. you you can no, you don't have to be somewhere that has um, an internet connection. You can connect directly to its own network. Good. Okay, that's important. You won't be able to control it remotely from hundreds of miles away, but if you're there right. on site, you still have access to it. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Wow. If you want to sit in the warm car and control the telescope outside, You've you can do that. Before. I can, you've done this once or twice, <laughs> yeah, haven't you? Have. Many times. <laughs> How much Many does something times. like that cost? Uh, let's see. So the most expensive one is just under 2000 It's uh, 1995 And the least expensive one, let me see here, is $995. So $1,000 difference. So they started just under $1,000. Now we've had the CEO on our podcast in the past, especially the first year we were we were doing. Uh, he he's a great guy, good company. Uh, do they do a lot of updates and stuff like that? Um, so I don't know. Let's say like like Windows eleven just came out. Do do you do they do that kind of thing, or do you have to keep on top of it yourself? No, they're a good company. They're uh, they they stay on top of things, and um, you know Tom Bramwell is here in the U.S. Um, he runs Prima Luce North America. Um, and you know, any questions anybody ever has, Tom is super quick to answer. And so, you know, they're, they're very committed to customer service and, and yeah, I guess the thing I'm thinking about are things like software updates and drivers right. uh, for cameras, things like that. They keep on top of that pretty good. Do you think they do? Yeah, okay. they, they absolutely do. But again, like camera drivers, that's stuff that's going to be in the software packages and you can pick any software package you want. Okay, so that would actually be a more of an issue of the camera you bought. So if you bought a right. uh, a certain camera with with certain software drivers, you want to make sure that's updated on the uh, Prima Luce Eagle uh, to make sure it runs mm -hmm. properly. Right? Yeah, because okay. this is just this is going to be the Windows machine. It's not it's yeah. not going to be the software package. You have to pick your own software package for this. Yeah. So if you think about it more as your laptop, only it's exactly packaged just way more badass. Way more badass. <laughs> okay, yeah. cool. Well, um, so yeah, well, these these systems are add-ons to almost anything you can buy, uh, except for with with respect to the smart telescopes, which we talked about at the beginning. I I think that's a growth area we need to keep an eye on. We're going to start seeing, I think, more companies building standalone telescopes like the Stellina and EV scope uh, that are just going to be you just use it. They can be run from all kinds of different places in the world. But I think they're also going to be small, so this need for a remote observatory maybe isn't as great. Um, a Prima Luce device would be helpful if you've got a permanently mounted telescope somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, uh, or you're going to be, you know, schlepping a lot of equipment out and you don't want to move it around a lot after you've set up. But these Stellinas and the EV scopes, you pick them up, you move them, you set them up, you say, okay, find out where you are and uh, and show me what I can look at. And, uh, you, you get a lot of capability that way. Uh, you don't get a lot of this same, you know, inner outside connectivity to do other things or strictly single use devices, but they fall into this category kind of loosely. So I wanted to include mm -hmm. them with here with this yeah. as well. So I don't know. They're, they're a little bit pricey. I mean, these we're looking at two, 3000 plus dollars, uh, for an EV scope slash Selena setup, Stellina setup. So, you know, but you don't have to buy anything else at all. Right. Um, so then you're imaging and you're set and ready to go. Okay. That's a, well, thanks man. This is good to know. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you next time, I guess. Absolutely. All right.
This is Space Junk Podcast. Hey, everybody. It's that time in the podcast where I get to say whatever I want. Whatever is in my brain gets to come out. And that's a great thing because 90%, I think, of the stuff that comes out of my brain is actually pretty good stuff, I assure you. And that 10%, well, that 10% is just like pizza. Even when it's bad, it's still pretty good. All right, let's get started. As I record this, I am freezing my butt off here in Central Florida. The Darnell clan is cold. The National Weather Service told us that it is the coldest it's ever been in forever, with forever being defined as the last four years. Apparently, a bomb cyclone went off in the northeast of the United States, raining down a pressure gradient on us that left us freezing, really super cold. We're down here trying to figure out how to put on 10 pairs of shorts, 20 t-shirts, and figure out how to put on some flip-flops in such a way that we can go outside without freezing to death. But you know what? It's all worth it. Because what that bomb cyclone left behind was dry, stable air with not a cloud in the sky. And that's something we don't get much down here. So I put on those 10 pairs of shorts, wrapped myself in 20 t-shirts, and I figured out how to put them flip-flops on. And I went outside and I looked up. And if you've been looking at the night sky, as long as I have, the first thing you do is you turn south to see if the moon's up, see what the planets are doing, and what slaps you straight in the face right away is the bad boy of the universe, the constellation Orion. This group of stars is so bright and so distinctive that any human being in the history of all human beings who ever went outside and looked up in that region of the sky saw it, gave it a name, and told stories about it. I mean, the ancient Babylonians called it the heavenly shepherd, and it was their chief god in the heavenly realms. The ancient Egyptians called it Sa, S-A-H, and, and it was closely linked with the goddess of the personified Sirius, which is another bright star just down next to Orion. They also associate it with their god Osiris, one of the most important gods in, the, in their culture. But the name we use, Orion, the hunter comes from ancient Greece. They said he was a really, really great hunter. In fact, he bragged about being able to kill every single animal on earth. That's how good of a hunter he was. And he was the son of Poseidon. But bragging about killing all the animals on earth, in addition to not being very bright, is something that also really, really irritated Gaia, which is the goddess of the earth. She didn't take too kindly to that. And so she tried to kill Gaia with a scorpion sting. And it would have worked, too, except a do-gooder, Budinsky, named Ophiuchus came in, gave him the antidote to the, to the scorpion poison, and he lived. And so Gaia's scheme was thwarted, and Orion lived to hunt another day. Told you he was a bad boy. So what the Greeks did was they told a whole bunch of other stories and said that Orion and Scorpius, the scorpion, can never be in the same part of the sky. Orion is the fall winter constellation. Scorpius is the summer one. And Ophiuchus is right in the middle of the two. I don't know why. I guess he's sort of arbitrating in an infinite battle of some kind or something like that. I mean, these were, you know, these stories, you know, the Greeks may have been smart, but when it came to some of their myths, well, not so much. So anyway, that's the story of Orion and what the Greeks thought about it. But what it really is, what Orion really, really is, is a 
star-forming region at an average distance of about 1,300 light years for the entire complex. And if you look along the belt of the stars, you'll, you, if you're really, really lucky, you might see the Orion Nebula hanging down from the belt of Orion in the sword of the Great Hunter. Now, I'm old. I have been looking at Orion since forever, with, with forever being defined as 60 years. So I used to remember seeing that nebula with my naked eye. I no longer tell people you can see it as a naked eye object. The same goes for the Andromeda galaxy. Our night skies have gotten so light polluted and so bright that I don't see anybody being able to check this out without a pair of binoculars. But it's definitely worth doing. The cold, stable night air of this bomb cyclone aftermath gives great views of the Orion Nebula and the surrounding region. There's a really tight open cluster in the Orion Nebula itself called the Trapezium. Beautiful with your naked eyes. Those are also brand new stars. The Orion Nebula is 24 light years across and is the home of many, many very young stars. So even though it's cold outside, and even though I'm wrapped in a rather awkward wardrobe here in central Florida, I'm outside looking up at the Orion Nebula, and I encourage you to go do it too, because it is amazing with the under these conditions. So if you're not digging out from the aftermath of the bomb cyclone in the Northeast, or if you have some clear skies this time of year, which we certainly do down here in central Florida, please go out and see what the bad boy of the night sky has to offer. Orion the Hunter. Okay, so that's it for this episode, space fans. I'm still waiting to hear from you guys on what you think of this new format. Space Junk Podcast at deepastronomy.com is the best way to reach me. Let me know how you're getting along with this. And on behalf of Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, I'm Tony Darnell wishing you a very good evening, clear skies, and... As always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>